This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. This is Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Innovative thoughts from baseball's best coaching minds from around the world. Brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Now your host, former USA Baseball National Team coach, Peter Caliendo. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you're at, in the U.S. or around the world. Welcome to Baseball Outside the Box. Thanks for joining us, and we, as always, want to thank our listeners and people that watch on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for doing what you do for us, because you get the show out. We're in over 100 countries, and we're excited about that, but we want to keep going, man, because we got some great stuff going on, and want to thank everybody. Uh, Again, special prayers to our friends in Ukraine. You know, I've been there many times. Um, want to you know make sure that they get special prayers get shown my ukraine baseball will not do not forget yet i'll be there soon hopefully things will end and also our russian friends because there's a lot of families in russia that have family in ukraine so god bless y'all uh prayers to all of you we're praying every day for you and watching everything goes on i know some tough times right now hopefully uh everything will end and we'll be able to help after that um so stay safe my friends and today we are excited because man this guy let me tell you um, exciting 40 years since 2018 when he re- retired, but he really didn't. He completed his tenure 40 years, the longest tenured athletic trainer in major league history um, with the Chicago White Sox 2005 World Series. He's rehabbed great athletes like Bo Jackson, Isaac Guillen, Robin Ventura, worked with Michael Jordan. You know, he was had two all star games. Um, I mean, the list goes on, uh, you know, basically one of the best trainers in any game, anytime. Um, and let me welcome our good friend, Herm Schneider. How you doing, Herm? Hi, Pete. Good afternoon to you, or good afternoon or evening, wherever you are. Yeah, we, we're, right now I'm with you in Chicago, but we've got a lot of followers, a lot of listeners, you know, all over the world, baseball people that love the sport. And this sport's just growing worldwide, as you know, because you've had a lot of people at, with the White Sox from different parts of the world, right? Absolutely. From the... Uh, uh, Pan-Asia to uh, the uh, Dominican, Venezuela, Mexico, Panama, you name it, we've had some players from there. Cuba is really producing some great players. Well, I love watching the White Sox, and we're going to get into that because I've been to Cuba nine times. I saw Abreu, a bunch of those guys play when they were younger. Um, you know, so uh, exciting things to talk about. There's some great players coming out of Cuba. Hey, boy. I apologize for this, but you're going to be my guinea pig. The first time I'm going to do this on the show, we're going to do some quick questions, right? Quick questions, quick answers, kind of let the audience know a little bit about you, and they're going to get to know more as we as we talk. Um, so let's start with number one. Um, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Amsterdam, Holland, the Netherlands, and came over to the United States when I was about five years old and grew up in Rochester, New York, uh, home of the Rochester Red Wings, uh, kind of where I kind of grew up and uh, across the street from the ballpark there. So that's what kind of stroked my interest in baseball. Cool. And, you know, and then when I saw that native of Amsterdam, the first thought, and I might as well throw this one in there. Have you ever been contacted by the Dutch team? You know, I've been in the World Baseball Classic all over the place to do things for them. Well, I did get in touch with the, uh, the general manager of the Dutch team. Um, and if there was a World Classic, I think he was going to ask me to do it. But Unfortunately, we had this thing called COVID that hit us that kind of uh, nullified the World Baseball Classic for a while. 
Yeah, we're going to uh, tell you what, we've had Hensley Newlands on the show before, and he's a good friend. I, re- I mean, really got to know him over the years, been down to Curacao. We're going to have to put that in his ear because uh, you need to be part of that Dutch team in the World Baseball Classic. That'll be awesome. I'm uh, 100% Dutch. All right. Uh, what about this one? Something you do daily to make yourself better. Um, I do a lot of reading about, uh, you know, my, my industry, my business, um, the new technologies that are coming out. And there's a lot of different things coming out these days. Um, I try to spend a little bit of time looking at that through some of my journals and uh, publications that I get. Um, I talk to some of our doctors and hear what they're doing these days. And we use Rush University Medical Center, Midwest Orthopedics, as our group here in Chicago, um, which is a group of excellent surgeons from every uh, subspecialty that you could ask for. So I'm really lucky I have a, a good inroads to them. You know, that's awesome. And, you know, always learning. That's what I love to hear, man. 40 plus years, always learning something new. And folks on Facebook, if you got any questions, uh, put them in the comments section and I'll take a look at them. Hopefully we can get them through. Herb, um, you know, here's another one I I really like. Um, Something that you do in retirement other than baseball. Well, I mean, I hope I don't offend anybody with this, but if I do, I apologize in advance, but I love shooting. So I go out and do a lot of shooting um, actually, I went out today and did a little bit of shotgun shooting. Um, I like pistols. I like shotgun. I like almost every type of uh, shooting um, armory there is. I'm with you. I do the same thing. I go to the range and I like to practice. It's just fun, you know, at different targets and everything. So it's it's, a, it's something that I enjoy, you know, kind of get away from things. Um, Absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, the other part I wanted to ask you about, you said when you, what was the reason that you got into being an athletic trainer? Um, I was very lucky when I was a youngster, um, the athletic trainer in Rochester kind of took me under his wing and um, brought me in the training room and kind of babysat me, so to speak. I was just a very young, young fella at the time. And I really just took a liking to it. And it was really before athletic training, sports medicine was really even um, a category, at, at, so to speak. Um, I guess I'm one of the pioneers of it because at that time, there really wasn't a true athletic trainer. It was just uh, kind of like a person there to help tape an ankle. Or, and the coaches used to do that. As you know, some of your coaches, that's what they do. And here comes a young kid that is interested in that and uh, learned from a trainer from the Red Wings. And then I just applied some of that to the high school and college uh, sports that I went to. Um, And and I just I kind of tell people it was like a snowflake turning into a snowman. So, uh, you know, just as a young man and here I am, an older fella and you know, still doing it. Yeah, we're both there. I can understand that one there. Um, you know, what about, you know, you've, uh, the difference in when you started and now, what were the major differences of an athletic trainer? You mentioned, obviously, you know, that when, you know, when you first started, you were doing different things, but what's the major changes now between the jobs? Well, there's so much technology involved now that you really have to be um, 
involved in the science. It's a little bit more science-based now and evidence-based and different things like that. So there's, there's, you know, people are dissecting the, the sports medicine industry a little bit and getting more in depth with it and doing more different things uh, with it now. And, you know, it's like anything else. It's just the way it is and the way uh, kids are growing up in colleges now. They've got all these new uh, techniques and different uh tools that they use and you got to stay up with the times you know it's just like anything else you got to stay up with the times absolutely you know the other thing is you're currently um like an advisor for medical issues related to free agency amateur drafts player acquisitions you know even though you're retired you're really not um you're doing some things for the white Sox. explain for like you know in the draft there's a lot of homework that's done. Obviously, the scouts do a lot of homework, but from a medical issue, there's a lot of homework that's done before you draft a player, before you even, especially, I would assume all players, but especially the, the ones, you know, at the top. Well, that's true. Um, and I don't, I haven't done that very much the past couple of years, but um, I was doing it quite a bit, looking at the medical records that come out of the kids' colleges and high schools that the scouts and MLB put to put in there. Everybody gets the same information. So everybody sees the same thing. Now, if you're really close with uh, a coach or a trainer from a university that that player played at, you might be able to get a little bit more information just in conversation. But when it comes to written information, everybody in baseball gets about the same information. And then you need to, you know, it's, it's so to speak, the word is like buyer beware. You better, you better do your homework and check and see what you're getting. Cause once you get them, they're yours, you know, and uh, you, you need to make sure that you know the history uh, of the, of the young fella, um, his surgeries, his previous surgeries, his previous injuries that he had. Um, and you can see kind of like, you know, you can find out how a player recovers the time, whether he's dra it drags on with him or not. You know, what kind of personality he has along with it? By if you just read the notes that come along with the uh, with the information from the college trainers, high school trainers, et cetera, et cetera. And nowadays, I mean, especially like you said with technology, I mean, you you know, you can almost predict that by an exam you can almost predict something happening in the future well if it's if it if he has a lot of one particular type of injuries then you can see that he has a, a weakness in that particular area and you just have to be cognizant of that now that doesn't mean you might not draft him or get him but that means when you do get him you have to, to be aware and spend more time on his weaknesses to make him stronger in those particular weaknesses. Um, a lot of times it's not the medical side that drafts the kid, it's the abilities and the stuff and the power and you know his bad control. Those are the kind of things. Medical is one thing, but the, the game is played by players and talent. So that sometimes trumps sometimes a medical issue. Not all the time, because it depends what it is. But a lot of times they'll say, you know, we'll just have to keep an eye on this kid, but we're, we're going we're gonna to draft them and, and bring them along slowly and 
see if we can build up his weaknesses to uh, get over the top of it. You know, Herman, kind of the elephant in the room, you know, it's always, you know, the biggest topic, obviously, and you know this, um, are the injuries to pitchers, especially because of velocity or because of other reasons. And, and I know, you know, it's not a perfect solution. You know, you know, it's not going to be solved completely, but what's happening in the game? Why are why do you think, what does the research show? What does your background have that shows, you know, why uh, young kids are getting hurt pitchers uh, more than ever. And even at the, at the major league level, I think you're seeing more injuries at times. Well, a lot of it has to do with pitchers is mechanics, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very, very difficult to change the spots on a leopard, so to speak. You know, a lot of times mechanics are the DNA of the person, you know, you're not going to be trying to change it. The younger the kid is, the better chance you have of changing his mechanics that he doesn't hurt it. But I mean, there's so many kids in high school now that are getting Tommy John surgeries and, and, and kids are throwing harder. I think that they, everybody wants to throw as hard as they can. And if you have bad mechanics and you throw hard, it's a formula for uh, potential Tommy John surgery. You know, it's just the way it is, you know, and per- Tommy John surgeries are very predictable. You know, I mean, um, if a fella has to have it, nobody wants to have it because you basically, you always hear about the successful ones. You don't hear about the ones that are become unsuccessful. They usually go by the wayside and you don't hear about them, but you do hear about the certain ones that, oh, he had, to- he had Tommy John and he's come back. He's thrown better than ever, harder than ever. That's true, but you also don't hear about the ones that had Tommy John and can't come back and haven't come back. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people think that uh, that's the way to go is get Tommy John, but believe me, that's not not the right thing to think about it. And shoulders are, are much more unpredictable than elbows. Elbows, you can predict pretty good and hopefully you get a good result. You get the right surgeon to rehab, to uh, do the surgery. Um, and then you get the right people to rehab them and do it the right way. You got, it's pretty predictable. Shoulders are, are pretty much unpredictable. You don't know what you're gonna get in return after a shoulder surgery, a labrum repair or rotator cuff, um, bone, you know, bone spurs and different things like that that happen in shoulders. But it's an occupational hazard, you know what I mean? It, it, the, the body wasn't meant to do that, so to speak. Um, and you're doing something that's basically unnatural and uh, there's a price to pay for that sometimes. Why, why do you think, you know, cause again, being in 40 years, um, you've seen a lot of players now in the older days, there didn't seem to be as many injuries and I could be wrong. There is many injuries and guys were pitching nine innings, you know, and I understand why the game's changing and you've got, you know, so many innings that a pitcher pitches and all that, but why, you know, back then, I remember Jim Cott talking about there weren't as many injuries back then than there are now. What do you attribute that to? Just velocity again? Well, I think, I don't think people threw quite as hard back then as they do now. Mm-hmm. I think the mentality now is to throw harder. Um, we didn't have uh, MRI units back then. Um, we didn't have a lot of the the, the things that I was talking about earlier, the science, the the testing and the different things that 
uncover things more now. And I think um, the people are, you know, they just handle things a little bit differently now than you they handled them back then. Uh, a lot, you know, like for instance, Nolan Ryan, he had Tom, he had torn ulnar collateral ligament in his elbow for quite a bit of his career, never had surgery. You know, he rehabbed it and kept it strong. But nowadays, if, you know, if they have the discomfort, you kind of lean towards maybe repairing it. And uh, that seems to be the, the trend these days. Um, not that kids are not as tough now, but it's just a different mentality growing up. I think as they, uh, as you, the way you grew up to the way people grow up now, you, I think you may understand what I'm trying sure. to say. Absolutely. hundred percent. And, and the other part of this is like you said, the technology now, I'm assuming now with all the technology, you have a better idea whether it should be a rehab or it should be a surgery back then. We didn't understand that as well. Cause we didn't have all this technology. Absolutely. And, and, you know, now you get an MRI and you get a 3D MRI. You know, I mean, it, it, it's pristine and you can see how bad it is. And, uh, you know, the, the physicians will, you know, will say, well, this fella needs to get it repaired if he wants to have a long lasting career. So then you do it and you, then you hope that the surgery goes well. You hope the rehab goes well and you hope he does well, you know, on how he handles everything. It's not the most pleasant thing to go through for sure. You know, it's, there's some discomfort involved and first trying to get the range of motion sometimes is very uncomfortable, you know, for a good while. And if you don't get the range of motion, there's strength and endurance that follow that, um, you know, it doesn't matter. You got to get that range of motion back first. And it's interesting. You said, you know, it's a hazard of the job, obviously, because it's not a natural motion. Um, so I get that people are going to get hurt no matter what. What's interesting is if we all understood what that, you know, after surgery, what that rehab is, and you rehab Bo Jackson's hip, I had a double hip replacement all done at one time about eight years ago. Um, so I understand what re the rehab part of that was, you know, when both your hips are being done at the same time. I, I believe and, you, Pete. And I'd rather not go through that, right? So you're, as, talk to the players out there and the parents and, and coaches. I mean, we want to try our best to work really hard at avoiding getting hurt, right? So you're in better health, better training, better at whatever it may be, all the different things. We want that first, so that way, hopefully, your chances of getting hurt are a little less. Right. Well, I've always been in, you know, been very successful through my career with prehab versus rehab. You know, I mean, it's you, you have, you get, you convince your players to be compliant to doing the things they need to do to hopefully short circuit the problems that may come up with certain different exercises. It's not a guarantee, but I was pretty successful on keeping guys healthy by doing prehabs things, you know, shoulder programs, arm health care, uh, shoulder health care, um, you know, just preparing them for the for the battle. And it was like um, I always told our guys, it's like making sometimes people understand money more than anything. So it's like when I have you do your prehab, it's like you're putting money in the bank. Yeah. 
when you're on the mound and you're throwing, you're making withdrawals out of that bank account, you know? So it's like anything else. The more you put in the bank account, you don't go, you don't go, um, you don't go broke at the end. You know, you have more to work with. You don't go become bankrupt. So the more deposits you make, the more you have. So the more you work at your prehab and your shoulder program, which is not the most fun thing in the world, Pete, you know, it's kind of not, I mean, it's, it's somewhat boring. It's, it's labor intensive, but it's pay me now or pay me later type of mentality. And that's how I kind of made our players think about it. You can, you can do this now and have a good healthy career and make money or you can not do it now and you'll break down and you're going to do the rehab anyway, but it's going to be, it's going to be more painful at that point. Great point. I love the incentive part. You know, and speaking about pay me now, pay me later, you know, I would assume common sense, that approach needs to be taught to the younger kids, the young coaches working with young kids, you know, the, the training is so important that because by the time you get them at the, whether it would have been when you were in the minor leagues or in the major leagues, you know, by then there could be a lot of things going wrong with the body that even you can't avoid now an injury because it happened maybe, you know, or it began when he was eight, nine, 10 years old. No, absolutely. You want to, you want to have good compliancy. You want to teach kids good. It's not any different. And I make a lot of comparisons, but it's not any different than brushing your teeth every day. You know, it's things you do. So you, you keep your teeth healthy and things like that. Not any different than that. You know, it's teaching them things to do. And I'd like to, you know, eventually if I can do that for you with your kids. Not any different than that. You know, it's teaching them things to do. And I'd like to, you know, eventually if I can do that for you with your kids. Not any different than that. You know, it's teaching them things to do. And I'd like to, you know, eventually. I was hearing my my yeah. Sorry about that. Keep going. Go ahead. You're good now. But it's 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 you want to teach the kids good work ethic, work good work pre- preparation, a good. So it becomes a- absolutely second nature to them to do this. That, you know, I need to do my shoulder program. You know, I need to do my show my my hamstring program i need to do my corrective exercises for my back so i keep my back healthy if you do all those things you could have a long lasting career but it's time consuming it's not a lot of fun it's you know it's it's hard work you know um you don't use a lot of weight for pitchers you know we never went over really five pounds in the training room that doesn't mean they didn't do more in the weight room heavier but you know you don't need to you know, use a lot of weight to um, get those muscles strong. They get strong very quick, but they also get weak very quickly also. Or what should a young kid, you know, 12, 13, 11, um, what should they be doing? What, what's your advice prior to a game? If they're going to pitch, uh, some things that are important for them to do, um, maybe to warm up or to avoid, you know, that, that stress. You're still going to have stress, but, to, you know, to kind of avoid that stress when they're pitching. Well, you know, one of the other things you do is you, 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 you warm up to play. You don't play to warm up, you know. So you, you, you put your shoulder and your elbow and your back, and each person knows where their shortcomings are. But if you're a pitcher, it doesn't matter if 
who you are. You want to make sure you warm up your shoulder, your elbow, your lat, different things like that. Get it warmed up because once you get on that mound, it's that little extra peak that I think you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. When you see that different uniform that you you give yeah. that little, that you give that little extra, and that's what usually burns you if you don't warm up. Um, so warming up the shoulder, the elbow, the body to play kind of gives you an advantage um, when you're on the mound and you need to give that little extra that is subconscious. And I think you know what I'm talking about. It's just you, you think you're throwing when you do a side day or you do a bullpen or whatever, you're throwing the ball hard. But when you get on the mound and you see that other uniform there, it's always a little bit extra. And that's the part that usually gets you when, when you have a shortcoming. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, here, here's the other part. Um, what about when the pitcher's done, young pitchers? Advice, you know, on what they should do to kind of warm down or to get them to recuperate a little bit quicker so they can come back and pitch a little sooner. Well, I've never really been a huge advocate of ice. I've never said no to anybody that wanted ice mm -hmm. um, because they're entitled to ice if they want it. But if they said, should I ice? Then I would say, well, I, I'm, I think to do a light shoulder program post-throwing to help flush the arm and, and try to get some of that lactic acid out of there, ice just kind of slows everything down when you want to flush the arm and you want to move that lactic acid out of there so that, you know, for your audience, the bad blood, which is the lactic acid, you want to get that out. If you put ice on it, you're slowing down the circulation. You might numb it where you don't feel it, but you're not really doing a whole lot of good for your shoulder or your elbow uh, at that point. You know, you want to kind of do some range of motion things and, and use that as a pump to pump out that bad stuff and bring in nice, fresh blood that helps you recover a little bit quicker. So you recommend, you know, like, uh, I don't know, stim or some kind of massage uh, in, instead of icing? Well, no, because I, I, not a kids don't have all of that available to them. Right. What I would suggest is um, arm weight without weights and just go through a little a, a modified shoulder elbow program that they would do with their weights, except just do it with the arm weight of the arm because the arm weighs about seven, eight pounds by itself. Yeah. So you're lifting seven, eight pounds with nothing and just go through a few five or six different exercises after they pitch to help move that lactic acid out. Now, if you have a trainer there or I'm there or somebody and they, and they want to milk the arm, I think, you know what I'm talking about there, mm -hmm. then you can help move that out. But you know, not all kids and, and players have that availability to them. Uh, STEM, we, we use a thing called Compax, which is a pump also that kind of, you put it on and helps pump out the, the, the lactic acid. It's all about that, lactic acid that dead blood that's sitting there that you want to get out and you want to get fresh new blood in to help recover the arm a little bit quicker and there's ways to do that but icing it is um you know i think that makes you a little bit sore actually because 
you're not really doing anything other than numbing the arm, but you, it's not moving any of that uh, lactic acid or blood or, you know, that you want to move out doing that. It's just sitting there then. So a lot of people will say, well, when you take the ice off, you get a blood rush, but I don't know if you get enough of the blood rush to, to cleanse the arm, to milk it. You know, her uh, music to my ears, and I'll tell you why, because you, you said you, you've never really used ice that much, never believed in it much. About three years ago, three years ago, Gary Rynell wrote a book along with the person who invented the ice method um, and came out with research showing that exactly what you're saying. Uh, so all these years we've been using ice, but they're saying the research doesn't show that it actually uh speeds up the recovery process that actually slows it down. Um, and it, so to ask you at the major league level, all these years, guys were icing. And then when you, did you, were you able to convince guys not to ice? And if you were, how did you do that? Because that's sometimes a mental thing too, right? I'm used to doing it my whole career. Now I've got to change. Well, you know, I mean, you would talk to them a little bit and say, why don't you try this? You know, let us do this with you. We'll teach you how to do this see if that works over the ice. Cause ice is just, you know, I think Sandy, Sandy Koufax used to ice his arm and because he did it, everybody else did it also. It just, <laughs> but uh, um, we would just kind of convince guys. And then in our minor league system, uh, our other trainers believed the same thing. And we, we had a bit of a policy that when we got a kid in, we would convince them maybe not to use ice and go through some range of motion work after they pitch. They do what they call a cool down. Um, it's like what after you go run, you stretch a little bit, right? I mean, you don't just cash in your chips. You lay down on the floor and you stretch out your hands. I'm talking about joggers that do that. They stretch it. Well, the arm is the same thing. You want to cool it down by stretching it back out and doing some exercise. So we would convince them. And then our kids that we are homegrown kids, we we pretty much convinced them. And when they get to the big leagues, they never even ask for ice. They just go do their cool downs, you know. And, but it's the kids that sometimes you acquire from other organizations that their philosophy may not be the same as ours. And if they want, if they, they encourage ice, you know, I mean, different strokes for different folks, you know, and, sure. uh, other organizations, sometimes they just throw ice on just to throw ice on. You know, they don't have a whole lot of reason to do it sometimes. But um, if the, and then players like it and they come over and they want ice. I've never say no to a guy that wants ice, never. But then I always ask them to do the cool down after the ice, you know, and uh, try to convince them that, you know, maybe we – instead of icing for 20 minutes, you know, maybe go 10 minutes and then maybe five minutes. And then eventually you get them off of ice altogether. And actually it's a lot of them feel better when they don't ice, you know, their arm feels lighter than, uh, than it does. Actually a lot of them, after they get done, they go, in, they go in the shower anyway and they put hot water on their arms, you know, so it's uh, they, that's what makes them feel good. So you know, and uh, folks, I know we're seeing, I know we're, I'm seeing a lot of universities not icing. They, matter of fact, there's universities that are called no ice universities. Um, I, I'm familiar with major league players. They, a lot of times may not give their names, but that don't ice anymore. 
Um, and folks, I know John had a question about the thing I mentioned with Gary Rynell. You can go to our to the podcast, check it out. There's two shows on the podcast, Gary Rynell, R-E-I-N-E-L, if I spell that correctly. You could Google it to my podcast and check out the two episodes. Um, they're over an hour. Each one gives a pretty good description of everything. So check that out. What's the toughest, what's the toughest part of your job as an athletic trainer? Um, the com compliancy and convincing guys to be compliant is probably the biggest job because once again, I always was in prehab and I always wanted guys to work so they wouldn't get hurt. And that was always the hard part. You know, I always would give a guy an invitation. Well, here's put a little note on his chair, you know, you are cordially invited to the training room to do your prehab today, you know, just kind of make light of it a little bit and have fun with it, you know, and because I know that if they do that, they're going to have less injuries and everybody benefits from that. Always the player is the prime person in, in the, in the mix, but the organization's in the mix also because the more you can keep a player healthy for his sake and for his numbers that he gets at the end of the year and his, you know, how many times he takes the ball and everything else and how, you know, I always kind of like when you, when you, when you give a guy a baseball to start the game, you can, you, do you want to just go in and grab it or do you kind of just say, Oh, I'm not sure I feel like that. <laughs> ball today you know I want that guy always to want to grab that ball and be ready to go because he's going to pitch well and we've had a lot of great pitchers that um that have done very well through the White Sox over the course of the years that have made the, themselves a lot of money and were able to you know do a lot for them and their families um when they got out of the game they had a, they had they had a good good, you know, life going after baseball. So that's what it's all about. But also for the team's sake, you, you know, you want those guys healthy because it's hard to replace your best players. You know, I mean, the, you want, you want to keep your best players on the field all the time um, because that helps the team. It helps the organization. It helps the city of Chicago. It helps everything, you know, but first and foremost, it helps the player to themselves. You know, and it, the other part of all this, you've had so many major league pitchers um, that you've worked with, that you've had on the clubs, not just the White Sox, but other clubs. A major league, what's it look like when a trade is made, you get a new pitcher, or even before the season, um, What's that communication with you look like? How, how does that go? And what do you guys talk about? Well, Pete, actually, when you get a new player, um, you don't go in there right away and try to change him. You know, you, 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 you let him do what he does best in his mind. And then over time, you, you talk to him and convince him once he gets to know you and you get to know him. You, you make a few changes to everything. Like I, like we said, you know, a big icing guy. So you say, okay, well, let's, after he's gotten his, his feet wet and he's comfortable with his new teammates and new city and new trainer, trainer, everything, you know, it's, 
not easy to get traded. You know, it's uh, you're coming into a different environment and you don't know anybody. Uh, so you don't want to just jump in there and force feed what you think on a guy. You just let them go. And over the course of time, you, you try to convince them, maybe try this, you know, see if, see how it works. If it doesn't work, you can go back to the way you want to do it, you know, and things like, and let me tell you, most of the guys that try to change and do it, they don't go back, you know, and I've had many a trainer from other organizations call me up and say, man, this guy is the most compliant guy there is, you know, he just <laughs> comes in, he does his work and, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to stand over his shoulder. He knows what to do. He takes his own responsibility and all that. You don't want anybody attached to your hip. You want to teach them how to take care of themselves. And then that becomes part of their DNA after that, where this is what I have to do to be successful. Make sense? Yes, absolutely. And it's also fair to say, especially nowadays, major league pitchers, especially um, whether it be their routine before they pitch in a game or whether there be after a game, the, the routine on what they do, it kind of varies, like you said, according to the individual. And and what they do, a starting pitcher versus a, uh, a reliever, a short reliever, you know, I, I mean, everything, it's not a can operation. It's, it's, it's individualized. Um, because a starting pitcher, when he comes out, whether he throws 30 pitches or he throws 100 pitches, he's still got those four days to get ready for his next start. So he can go through a regular shoulder program, so to speak, regular arm care. But, you know, the and the long reliever, if, if a guy throws 20 pitches and the long reliever comes in and then he, he's, got a, he's got almost the same thing as a starting pitcher, but maybe not quite as much. And then as your bullpen goes to the back end, you know, you have a little bit of a modified because that pitcher may have to come out tomorrow and pitch, you know, may have to pitch four or five days in a row, you know, hopefully not, you know, but uh, sometimes he has to come out and throw one inning or, you know, four or five days is a little exaggerated, but, you know, three, three days or three days in a row or something like that. So you have to kind of keep him ready for them. But those guys are just so good at what they do. Then that's why they, that's why they are where they're at. They're just, they're, they're ultimate pros. They know how to take care of themselves. Well, I'm you curious know. because, you know, it, it can help high school, college, young kids. You know, when you take that picture, major league picture that pitches three days in a row, because it'd be crazy to take, I would think 11 year olds and have them pitch three days in a row. I think that'd be one of the worst things to do, but yeah, I, was, I wasn't talking about them. No, right, right. But what would that's what's amazing about these relief pitchers. They end at the big league level. They pitch three days in a row and a lot of them could be very successful at it. What do they do to kind of regroup at, you know, after they pitch that day, now they know they might come back tomorrow. What's some advice there? Is, does that change, you know, on how to, how to, you know, what kind of workout should they handle? Well, I mean, they do the same thing. They do a cool down, you know, but it's an abbreviated cool down compared to, what a starting pitcher would do. It's just an abbreviated program. Instead of 20 things that the starting pitcher does to cool down, maybe it's 10 things or, or five things, just something to, to stimulate a little bit of movement in that, that arm and that lactic acid. Um, a lot of 
a lot of back end guys don't ice a lot, you know, because they want to get, keep that arm moving along, you know? So um, it just, once again, it's, it depends on each individual, what they, what they like and what they, you're not going to, you're not going to take ice away from a guy if that's what he feels makes him successful. You know, Herm, the, some of this, when you, when you talk about, it depends on the player, you know, the type of person and different things. Um, are we also talking about body structure? You know, in other words, are there evaluation going on of their body structure, their strength, their weaknesses, and then you determine how somebody's handled or what kind of program they're on? Well, the, yes, that's that's very true. I mean, if if you're a long, lean guy, which is kind of like an ideal type of pitcher, um, they need maybe a little bit less than the big strong guys because they just the big strong guys just come right at you you know so to speak so they they throw hard and uh they need maybe a little bit less at the time you know so or maybe a little bit more it just depends once again it's so individualized and you have to get to know the person and see what makes them tick so to speak mm. i know i'm not giving you a great answer but it's so individualized that that's um, what you know. People don't understand is you got to. We have to get to know that player and find out what he needs on an individual basis to be successful. Yeah, and you hear a lot of times the player has to give you a response how they feel, right? I mean, it's all. It, it, it can't be just what you guys think. It's how the player's feeling at the time. And, and again, would, I would think also with you know, and I know you're not a manager, but a manager has to make a decision, you know, so many guys are going to available next day, but that player has to be open about, you know, maybe I'm not feeling good right now. Yeah, they have to be open, but a lot of times they, they don't give into that. You know, they'll say, I'm, I'm ready to go. And yeah, you know that, you know, that they're a little tired and they, they need, so as as a trainer, sometimes you'll see that they're struggling a little bit with their your their stuff, and they're say so, you know you kind of mentioned to the manager, you know, if you don't really need him today, maybe stay away from him. You know, he's available, but if you don't need him, maybe stay away from him for a day and give him a bit of a breather because he's not going to ask for a breather. So right. you know, that's a good point. So the player would come to you, which makes it a lot easier on the player. He doesn't have to go directly to the manager and try to communicate something like that. And no player wants to come out. I get it because it's their job and they don't want to lose their job for whatever reason. Um, you know, what about young kids? Uh, advice for young kids and actually coaches that are working with young kids when it comes to pitching, um, anything specific, you know, things that they're, they should stay away from. Don't do this. Don't do this part. Uh, maybe pitch counts, whatever it may be. What, what's your advice? Well, I, I don't think any young kid, um, and now you probably maybe have heard this, but when I get asked when a kid should start throwing a curveball or a slider, it's not until he can start to shave, you know? So it's not like at a, uh, 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 you know, 11 years old or something like that, try to throw a break and a big curveball. Fastball changeup, you know, is 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 probably the safest thing on the arm at that young age. Um, 
because if, if you learn how to throw a changeup, it's almost like throwing your fastball. So it's probably the most easiest thing on your arm that there is. Now, I know a lot of guys try to hump up and throw a lot harder, but after a while, they know that you can't hump up too much because actually you lose velocity when you hump up. You know, it's when you're nice and easy. But, you know, curveballs, sliders, forkballs, splitters, all those things should not happen with a young kid until at least he can shave. Now, that's like, what, 15, 16 years old, maybe in somewhere in there. Um, Why? Why? Well, because you, the, 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 the bone structure in your arm is still developing and you have the bone growth plates that are in, in the joints that are not strong enough to handle that and the ligaments are not strong enough to handle that because they're not matured enough. They haven't, they haven't grown enough, you know? And uh, I think people don't understand the anatomy of their arm they just want to go out and play baseball and do the same thing the big leaguers do, you know, mm-hmm. throw this, throw that. They're just not ready for it. Their arms are not matured enough. They're not developed enough. They're not, they haven't, uh, they haven't grown enough. The, the growth plates and everything else are still growing on young, young people, you know? So, um, that's I, great, great points. Well, those, those are good points, you know, and, and it's true. You know, you got to be careful. And, you know, we're trying to do uh, pitch counts on kids and not let them pitch two days in a row. And because let me tell you, coaches who I love to death, but when they're doing, they're coaching a team, they want to win the game, not necessarily worry about the health of the kid, you know, because if this kid has good stuff and he throws the ball well, you want to use them as much as you can, but are you, you're really not helping the kid. You're, you're actually, you know, could be hurting the kid in, in, in a lot of ways. So, uh, yeah, you know, and when I was at Mickey on baseball school, man, that was back maybe 40 years ago, you know, you're seeing it now at the big league level back then we had, you know, 11 year olds, we had 14 year olds, but we used six, seven pitchers. Um, because you know, we didn't know the pitchers. They they were only they there for a certain period. They pitched a lot back home. Um, now you're seeing that, you know, at the big league level, you're seeing a lot more pitchers used in the game. A pitcher doesn't go to three batters as much. Um, you know, so and I bring that point up, Herm, because I'm a big advocate also. You know, if you if you teach your kids to throw correctly, as you mentioned earlier, mechanics, they they got a better chance of pitching. So you could have more pitchers on your team instead of having those two, three pitchers always pitching all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you're always going to have your kids that are a little bit better than another, but those are the ones you want to take care of and, and make sure that they continue to get better because for their sake, they, you know, they could go on and play high school ball and then college ball. And, you know, with the grace of God, they could go to the big leagues and, maybe have be successful, but if they break down in high school or, you know, or even in pony league or whatever, because they're trying to, you know, every, um, most parents think their kids are going to be the next Roger Clemens or, or whatever. And that's a good way to think. I mean, my daughter played softball um, in D one in college. And I mean, I saw many of the parents think that their kids were going to, 
be on the Olympic team, you know? And right. uh, so it's just the way it is. My daughter, she knew better because she, she lives with me. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> but she, she was a good player. That's why she got, you know, scholarship into uh, University of South Florida to play softball. So, um, but you know, I mean, parents sometimes can be, you know, the biggest problem a little bit. They want their kid to throw that curveball instead of saying, don't throw that curveball, throw a changeup, learn how to throw that changeup. Changeup is a great pitch to learn. You know, I mean, it's an equalizer, really. You know, you throw one, you know, in the big leagues, you throw one at 98, and if the other one is at 70, that, ooh, that's a big, big, big difference in that. Uh, and that the health becomes better. You know, um, the guys that have a lot of shoulder problems are the ones with bad mechanics and throw hard versus the guys that don't throw hard and are pitchers. They pitch more than, th than just to be flamethrowers or whatever. But, you know, I mean, baseball looks for hard throwers. So, so can't you can't teach them throw the ball hard. You can't teach that. That's a God-giving thing that you have. Um, but you can teach somebody how to throw a curveball. You can teach them how to throw all the other pitches, teach them that, but you can't teach them how to throw a fastball. You know, you either have it or you don't. And fair to say, whatever age group you're working with, obviously you want to watch all your kids and, and make sure they're all healthy and everything's going well. But really watch, be careful with the kids in that age group, again, that throw really hard, harder than most of the kids in that age group. You've got to be careful with those kids, especially. You do. You have to be careful with them because they'll, you know, they'll try to do more than they're capable of doing. They'll try to throw harder and then they come out of their, their, their comfort zone and then they, their mechanics are, are, are just out of whack, so to speak. Yeah, Herb, listen, you, you've worked with, um, and we, we've got about 10 more minutes left. You worked with so many great athletes. And I know I put you on the spot on this because it's hard to pick one. If you want to mention a couple, but what's a one or two of your favorite players that you just love working with um, because of their attitude, because of how they, you know, handle themselves and all that? Well, I mean, Harold Baines is probably at, right at the top of my list. Um, he's, you know, we spend a lot of time together and he's, he's ultimate. He's the greatest. And I mean, I have a whole slew of them. Um, Robin Ventura, Greg Walker, Rich Dotson, uh, uh, you know, just a whole, I mean, a, a bank load of uh, Jose Abreu. They, they don't make him any better than Jose Abreu. He is, he is the cream of the crop. You know, he's, he's unbelievable. Um, Ray Durham's that I had, uh, Vance Laws. I mean, they're, they're wonderful guys. I, I, I never really um, worried about how they played. I just liked them as, as people, you know, that was yeah. my big, you know. What, what did you, okay, without name, you don't have to mention names here, but because to give advice again to our, our kids that are listening too, because we got players to listen also, what did you not like from players what they did sometimes, maybe something they said or what they did, you know, um, or what they were thinking at the time. Is there things that kind of got you a little upset, but even though you may not have shown it? Um, 
if, if they wouldn't take constructive criticism, hmm. that was always like, okay, you know, you're on your own, so to speak. You know, if you break down, you break down. You know, if you don't want to, um, a lot of guys wanted what they wanted and it wasn't working for them. I mean, it, we saw that it wasn't working for them. And you try to convince them, of, why don't you try this instead of this? And they didn't want to do that. And um, I never took anything personal because once again, it's, um, it's business and it's not personal, you know, but you would, you would say, okay, if you don't want to do it this way, fine, you do it your way. And I would just spend a little more time with somebody else that maybe wanted a little bit more help, you know, but you know, it's kind of like coaching. It's kind I'm of like sure. co coaching. Yeah. It sounds very similar um, because, you know, what I was going to ask you was, you know, even though your, your title might be athletic trainer or they have another title for it, there were times I would assume athletic trainer still has to deal with the mental part of the game, right? Players have problems. They come to you with problems. Big time, big time. What was yeah. that like? I mean, now all of a sudden you're dealing with family issues or something else that goes on. Well, you know, a lot of times they would just, because I was, I was older than them and I was hopefully a little bit, maybe wiser than some of them, you know, and they would come up and say, you know, I'm having this or whatever. What would you think? And I, I'd give them how I felt about it. And, uh, you know, a lot of them would use it and became very grateful because it would help, you know, I mean, I've seen the, the problems sometimes are not different over the course of years. There's just different people with the same problems, yeah. you know, so I've had, you know, a little bit of experience with a lot of different things. It's just different, different players at different times, you know, so I would learn from back then, um, you know, like Tom Seaver told me, he said, Herm, the one thing that players need to learn is the difference between soreness and pain. There are two different things. So I would try to use that because Steve taught me that. And I, I would see what a guy had and I would say, you know, you need to kind of learn the difference between what your soreness is and what pain is. And I would be able to apply that to somebody else because Steve gave me that information. So I've been very blessed with a lot of big, big name players. And uh, I've, dealt with a lot of them and uh, I hold a whole lot of them in very, very high regard. Folks, if you're watching on uh, social media, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, we're with Herm Schneider, World Series champion, 2005, Chicago White Sox, athletic trainer, longest tenure trainer, Major League Baseball, I'm assuming is going to be a Hall of Famer. Um, what a great person. Great. And then I've read a lot of things on her, but, you know, it wasn't, her, you know, I know that Reinsdorf mentioned, I know I saw in one article where, you know, just an unbelievable what he's done for the players throughout all the years, but also his personality and how he dealt with people, you know, the, the humor, all this stuff. So I think that, that's important um, when you're looking to do a, a, you know, have a career in, in, uh, in athletic training. Her You've worked with Bo Jackson. Uh, you had this when after he had his hip surgery. Did he have to? You had to set up a plan for him. Were you involved in that and on, on rehabbing? And how did how did that look? And how was he to work with? 
Well, it was unbelievable. You know, I mean, he, uh, I, I got him when he got hurt from uh, the football injury with the Bengals and the Royals let him go. And we, we picked him up and um, trying to rehab a guy with a, with a bad hip, which you know about uh, <laughs> play big league baseball was quite a challenge and it wasn't working, Pete. It, it just wasn't working. So he and I sat down and uh, we talked and I said, you know, this isn't working. You know, I mean, you, you, you're not, you're not getting anywhere and you put yourself through pain. I says, I think you need to get your hip replaced and we'll find the right guy to do it. And then we'll try to rehab you. But more importantly, it's for your quality of your life versus baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're giving it your best shot. It's not coming. It's, you're in pain, you know, you're hurting. And he would never complain. He tells Bo, as you know, with a hip, he'd have a hard time putting the shoes on, you yeah. know, because you cross your legs and it hurts to put your – he never complained once. But you could see that it wasn't working. So we talked and said, you know, maybe it's time to get this hip replaced. We'll get, like I said, get the right person to do it. But first and foremost, it's for your quality of your life. You know, so you have a, a pain-free life and you can live your life. But we will try to rehab you to play baseball. And that's exactly what we did. And I was able to rehab him to get him back to play baseball. And he promised his mommy would hit a home run and came right back. And at the first, almost, I think it was his first game, he hit a home run against the Yankees. And, uh, I was always worried about him sliding and we practiced sliding in spring training. I remember we, his first slide was against the pirates in spring training. And I said, Oh boy, here we go. You know, <laughs> can you imagine, I mean, trying to slide with a, with a hip. And, Absolutely. Uh, back then, what kind of, what kind of surgery was it back then compared to now? Cause technology's changed, right? Yeah. I mean, they just did a, a, an external one on the side and they now they split you down the middle a little bit to make it less invasive. They do they have different, but his was good. But but he's so active, you know. He's a hunter. He likes doing this. He um, he's had his cut two revisions already on his hip. You know, he he doesn't care. He just wants to live his life, and he's doing great. But it was it was a challenge. It was uncharted waters for me to rehab a guy with an artificial hip. Never thought I was going to have to do that, you know. I mean, but I did it, and we uh, we were successful. Bo did. We worked his butt off, um, and uh, we 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 spent a lot of time together, days and days and days, getting that hip ready for baseball. Just, I mean, we got it ready to walk, just walk without a limp, you know. And then we decided, well, we'll take it another level and get it ready for baseball. And he played. He played baseball. You know, and obviously great athlete, very strong. I remember we honored you and him at the Pitch and Hit Club, and I remember taking a photo with him, putting, you know, my arm around him, and it felt like there were weights on on, the, on his shoulders. That's I right. felt like I was touching weights. But being with him that whole time, okay, we know he's a great athlete, he's strong and all that. What else did you see in him that made him the great player? Because he would have been a Hall of Famer in, the, in, in Major League Baseball eventually. What oh. made him so good? Um, his will to, to do, to do good. Uh, he always wanted 
to do nothing but but do the job greatly. You know, he wanted to do it to the best of his ability and, and worked hard at it, worked very hard at it. Um, like I said, he never complained about anything. Um, he set up a program for him. He would never look at it and try to change it in any way. You know, why don't we do this today? Or he, he, he would just listen. And, uh, and because of that, all of, all of that, he, he came back and played. I don't think anybody else has played with an artificial hip, has it? Have they? And, uh, no, not that I know of. What, what about you? Saw, you know, obviously, you were in a dugout and you saw him in games and everything, and everybody fails. You're going to fail in a game of baseball no matter what. Um, did he do anything different when he failed? Uh, what did he look like? Did he, you know, did he keep his calm? What, was he more intense? He, ne- he was always – I mean, he didn't like to fail by any chance, but he didn't throw his helmet or do anything like that. He, he was not happy when he failed, but sure. he kept his cool because he knew there was going to be another at-bat you know, shortly after that, you know, and he would, he, he, he was wonderful. I mean, he, he and I are very close, you know, we spend a lot of time together. Um, he's just an awesome, awesome person. He really is. Love it. Love to hear that. Hey, we're getting close, but I got to ask you a couple other things because I think it's interesting. Um, we're going to jump to a different personality, Ozzie Gian, because I love Ozzie Gian. And, and I'll be, you know, I watch both the White Sox and Cubs. You know, so I know in Chicago, you're either one or the other, but I like watching both teams. Um, you know, I do watch the Cubs a little bit more day games because I like watching day games on TV. Um, but I watch the White Sox also pregame and postgame because of Ozzie Smith um, and the guys on that show, even Frank Thomas. And I love the way, because he's honest, you know, and I love that the way he talks about the game and he's just entertaining and all that. Um, what was he like? You did a rehab with him. What was he like in that situation or even during the games? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, don't, I worked him very hard from that. He had a collision with Tim Raines and he tore his ACL and his MCL yeah. um, with a collision wow. with him. And, um, and, I worked him incredibly hard and teamed him up with Bo a lot in the wintertime. Once the rehabs got to the point where we had to do a little bit more of the uh, baseball skill type of things. Yeah. So we, uh, I, uh, and Bo would, he would challenge him too. So, you know, they're very close also, but uh, Ozzy is, is, absolutely wonderful he's he's like a son to me you know i mean i've had him um, here's a quick story we traded lamar hoyt for him yeah i don't remember the year pete but roland heeman was the one that made the trade and uh, we were in spring training in sarasota and ozzy was coming into spring training and uh roland came in the training room and he said we got to pick up this kid, Gian, that we got. He's coming in the airport. I said, no, roll. He, he's, sitting, he's sitting right here. He goes, oh, I thought that was the bat boy. <laughs> I mean, that's how Ozzy was so skinny, so small. Yeah, they look young. Done. So uh, that's how long I've known Ozzy. You know, wow. basically, I wouldn't say his whole life but pretty much his whole life, you know, I knew him before he was married, when he got married, 
before his first kid, second kid, third kid. So, I mean, I've known him forever and he's, he's special, but you know, you better be ready. When you ask him a question, you're going to get, you're going to get the answer that you may not like sometimes. (laughs) I think, you know what I mean? On his shows, he's the same way, you know? He's you know, gonna, and I, that's why I love watching him, to be honest with you, because, you know, one, you don't know what he's going to say, but you're interested also in knowing what he's going to say, because you want to know what he what he thinks. Oh, yeah, he's he's uh, he's going to tell you right. He's going to shoot from the hip on most things. Tell you, you know, so, I mean, he's, you know, I could he's, imagine I, I could imagine this, too. And then um, I got one more thing for you and then we'll finish it off. This has been great. I appreciate the time. Um, you know, the, I could imagine Bo Jackson and him working out that he wasn't going to say no to Bo. I guarantee you. No, I, he would never. But I got to tell you, if you look at the, at the, at, uh, the statistics after he hurt his knee and he missed that year when he came back after his injury was the best year of his career. Ah, so interesting. He worked so hard that 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 work took him into baseball and he had he had the best year of his career that year coming back, you know, love it. Interesting. Love it. And matter of fact, I've been uh, I go back and forth once in a while, even though he knows a lot of people on uh, social media with him on uh, LinkedIn. I tried to get him on the show, but I know he's busy. Um, Finally. the White Sox have had a lot of Cuban players. You mentioned Abreu, you know, but they've had other other Cuban players. When the first, when you first saw the Cuban players come in White Sox system, what impressed you about them? How polite they were, how grateful they were. Um, you know, the Alexi Ramirez was probably one of the first guys I got. I mean, they're they're brought they're they're brought up very very good their families teach them very good i mean they're very respectful very grateful um always you know por favor please gracias thank you you know uh i mean very 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 well put together um respectfully and I, um they're all that way i mean you know mocada's that way uh Breu's that way they're very very nice you know and uh, they work hard. They're grateful. They, I mean, they, they did a lot to come over here and play baseball, you know, mm-hmm. so they, they have a lot to be grateful for and they are, you know, they're very thankful people and very respectful people. Great to hear that. Love it. And uh, just that on Alexi Ramirez, just give you a little story there. Uh, a friend of ours was the president of the baseball federation with Cuba and, uh, you know, he was the one that gave Ramirez permission to uh, go see his wife in the Dominican Republic because she was having a baby. Well, that's when right. he defected. Uh, we never saw the president. He no longer had a job after that. Um, but that, that's just a side story, uh, you know, because he thought he was coming back. You know, and I don't blame him. You know, I mean, great life in the States. This is where they all want to play. And, and the other thing is, don't you think. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but don't you think they, they seem to be a little bit more prepared, fundamentally ready to play in games because they're a little older too, right? They don't come over at 16 years old. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, they play a lot of baseball. So that's like their minor league years playing all that yes. baseball. 
you know, so yeah, I mean, I mean, we've signed a couple more guys, Cespedes, the young Cespedes kid. Is yeah, saw- so, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're good, but even all Latin kids, you know, are so, so grateful pretty much. And, you know, they, their number one thing is going to play baseball. That's what they do. You know, they don't have all the electronic toys that uh, a lot of our kids have, you know, they go out and play baseball and they don't even have shoes. They just go play on rough fields and they play on bad hops and they learn how to, they learn how to catch all those, you know? So yeah, they're very grateful people. Very good people. Absolutely. Well said. Herb, can't thank you enough, man. Um, I appreciate it. I uh, hope everything go, is going well for you. I hope to see you somewhere, maybe at, uh, you know, at the park. Uh, but, you know, I hope everything's going. Well. I, you know, really appreciate you doing the show. My pleasure. Glad to do it, Pete. All right, folks. That is Herm Schneider. Thank you very much to Herm. Thank you to Brian Crock, our producer with the Lineup Media Group. Of course, special thanks to everybody in the U.S. and around the world. Continue to spread our social media. Spread the show. God bless you all. Remember, stay safe, be healthy, and we'll see you on the next show. This has been Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Listen online at BaseballOutsideTheBox.com and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all major podcast outlets. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Get all of our podcasts now at lineupmedia.fm.